we're going to start this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to see, as we go through these chapters, the repercussions of David's sin. And sin is not something we hear a lot about in church today because it's not comfortable. We don't like being called out on our sin. I know for me, you know, if I'm not acting in a Christ-like manner, if I'm not acting the way that I should, I'm fleshing out. Uh, You know, if Jennifer points something out to me, my disposition and my tendency is to want to get defensive. And not just Jennifer, if anybody were to point out some, some sin in my, my life, I would not be, thank you so much for pointing that out. You know, I just appreciate that. You know, that's just not my nature. I don't know if it's human nature. We get defensive. And so it's a thing that people don't want to hear about, but it's vital because sin is deadly. Sin destroys. Sin causes problems. And it only takes one to cause a ripple effect that goes on and on and on. All we have to do is go back to the Garden of Eden, right? One choice, one sin. And we're dealing with the repercussions of it to this day. When you look at David's life with his sin with Bathsheba, we will be seeing the repercussions going on and on because of that one choice, which led to sin after sin after sin and problem after problem after problem. And if we can take these things to heart, it will make things a lot better for us, okay? Learning from David's mistake, that's a good thing. And as I was looking at these passages today, it made me think of, you can take one stone and you can have a lake or a pond or a pool or a puddle and you can take that one stone and you can throw it in and you can watch the ripples just spread out and out and out and keep going, right? And it's a testimony, I think, to the fact that when we sin, and this is why God tells, one of the reasons why God tells us not to sin and to be careful is because those ripples from that choice, from that sin, go out and affect a wider and wider scope over time. And we don't want that. You know, and we've all been there, I know. We've either suffered because of our own sins and other people suffering because of our sins, or we have suffered the ripple effects of other people's sins, right? And it's just, you you can't win with it. So in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, we're at a place where Absalom has already incited a rebellion. So if you remember what we talked about last week, we saw David's sin with Bathsheba, And God's saying, okay, you're going to have the sword in your own family. And you are going to deal with the repercussions of this because of your sin. 
okay? And so we saw that here's David. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. And it's believed because her father's name is also the name of one of uh, Ahithophel's sons, who we'll read about today, um, that Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. So if Ahithophel needed a reason to hate David, this would be it, okay? So he counsels against David. Amnon, David's son, wants David's daughter, Tamar. Amnon's, this is worse than a soap opera, but, you know, it's his stepsister. So he deceives David. David sends Tamar. Amnon rapes Tamar. Then David doesn't do anything about it, but then again, you know, he's guilty of his own sin, so is he holding back because of that? So we're seeing this thing snowball and get uglier and uglier. And then Absalom, who is Tamar's brother, he's angry at David and angry at Amnon. So he manipulates David and he murders his brother Amnon, half-brother, all right? And then because he's guilty of first-degree murder, he runs to his grandfather and his kingdom so that he doesn't have to lose his life under David. But David's not doing anything about that. And it just is a mess. And so we're at the place now, Absalom has incited a revolt against his own father. Ahithophel, David's chief counselor, has now sided with Absalom. David's on the run, and things just keep getting worse. So in chapter 16, we've got David crossing the, the Kidron Valley, and he's going up the, the um, Mount of Olives. And as he's getting up there, you've got Ziba coming along. He was a servant of Saul, and he was now the servant of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who God showed kindness and mercy to and restored uh, Jonathan and Saul's lands and all to Mephibosheth. And Ziba lies about Mephibosheth. So Ziba shows up and he's got all these gifts for David. And David's like, where's Mephibosheth? Where's your, where's your master? And in verse uh, 3, we see this dialogue between him and Ziba. And the king said, where's your master's son? That's Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth now is yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. We'll see later. Ziba was taking advantage of the situation. He was lying. Mephibosheth, remember he was crippled, so he's getting his donkey and he's getting ready to go out and help David. And Ziba says, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. I got it covered. I'll bring the stuff out and everything. So Mephibosheth stays home, blessing Ziba, saying, okay, you go and, and support David. And Ziba's lying and deceit. And deceit and, and falsehoods and all this garbage just keeps growing around David. And David doesn't check it out for himself. He just gives Ziba everything, all right? And then 
in verse 5, there's a guy named Shammai. He's of the household of Saul. And he sees David coming along, and he's taking rocks and throwing rocks at David and cussing him out, cursing him. And David stays his hand, but look in verse uh, 7, and look at what Shammai has to say. Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And he's just tearing into him. So here's David. He's already heartbroken. His own children are killing and raping each other. And everything is falling apart. And now here's Ziba lying. And David now thinks his best friend Jonathan's son has now betrayed and trying to usurp the throne. Then you've got a relative of Saul tearing in and, and cursing him out. And David's response when, when Abishai wants to kill him, listen to the heart of David. This is verse 10. But the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? That's Abishai. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So he's in this place now where it's like, look, everything's falling apart. Let's just not make it worse. Let God deal with it. And that's one of the best things we can do is just go to the Lord and say, okay, God, how do you want to handle it? I'm putting it into your care. If you want to do this where, you know, I'm never coming back to Jerusalem, that's your business. I get it. And David will say that later to the Lord, but it's in your hands. And that's such a wise thing to do, is just leave things in God's hands and do what he tells us to do. So while this is going on, Absalom goes into Jerusalem. Ahithophel says to him, okay, this is what you need to do. You need to uh, get the concubines that David left behind in the palace and set up a tent up on the rooftop and go in and have sex with them, all right? Because when a king was conquered, the harem of that king became the new king's harem, okay? It was just this, you know, domination thing or whatever. But that was the tradition. And it goes back to what God told David through Nathan God said to, to David, what you did in secret with Bathsheba, Israel is going to see, and it's going to be open for everybody to see. And that's exactly what Absalom did. And so all of Israel, you know, that was there in Jerusalem, saw Absalom shame his father and take the kingdom basically away. So it was very, very, very humiliating. And then we have Ahithophel now saying, okay, let's go ahead and take out David. So he's already giving counsel to disgrace and dishonor David. And now it's like, let's, let's get this guy killed, 
Let's, let's just take him out of the picture completely. So in verse, chapter 17, look at what we have, verse 1. Moreover, and remember, Ahithophel was like one of his chief counselors. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. That is so like the enemy, right? When did Satan come and face Jesus in the wilderness? Not when he was strong, you know, physically and all. He waited after 40 days where he's hungry and he's weak and he's near death. And that's when the enemy strikes. And that's what he does with us. He hits us when we're weak. And the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So the entire nation is against David now. And the council of uh, Ahithophel is right on. David is broken. He's beat up. He's hurting. And so what's beautiful about this is God is still in control of this situation. And you remember that Hushai... He was another counselor and friend of David. And he went to follow David. And David said, no, go and serve Absalom and be my eyes and ears and get word to me what's going on through the priests. And so Hushai is there swearing allegiance to Absalom, but he's basically an undercover agent, all right? And uh, who says the Bible's not like intriguing and interesting? You know, this is like crazy stuff. So he's a spy. And so in verse five, it says, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And then even the valiant men, whose hearts are like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. So he goes on to say, my counsel is just get the whole army of Israel, Absalom, you go out, you lead them, and then you know when they fight back with everything they have, you fight back, and you'll have the victory. And Absalom takes that counsel. What's interesting is, in verse 14, it says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Look what it says. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So even though this is a mess, God's still in control. And that is such an encouragement for us. It can be dark. It can be horrible, the things that we're going through. But God still is in control. 
and we can rest in that. And God was moving. So Ahithophel was also a man of pride. So when this decision goes down, Ahithophel goes home, gets everything in order, and commits suicide. He's disgraced and dishonored. He can't live with that. He kills himself. So he's out of the picture, and Absalom raises the army, and they go out after David. Now, in chapter 18, it goes through, and it tells us that they're fighting. Absalom is in the, the woods, and what we're told is that the forest killed more of the army of Israel than David's men did. So I don't know, I just, anybody ever seen the Lord of the Rings where the forest is actually fighting, you know, and stuff? All I can just picture is these trees like eating these guys and stuff, but that's not what's happening. But somehow the forest is being used by God to take out the enemies of David. And... Uh, one of the things that happened with Absalom, he's riding along on his, his donkey into battle, and he's got the flowing hair, the Fabio kind of look, whatever, and his hair gets stuck in the trees. And then he's stuck, and the donkey keeps going. And there he is just kind of hanging there. And people get word back to Joab and say, hey, you know what? Absalom's stuck in a tree. He can't get out. And so... Joab goes, and David has made specific commands to the people of Israel, to his men, you don't kill my son. You treat him gently. And Joab's like, are you kidding me? He grabs three spears and throws them right through his heart. And they kill him right there. Word gets back to David, David's heartbroken. Understandably, he's watching the repercussions of his sin just get worse and worse and worse. Amnon was dead. Tamar was raped. His little boy that was born to him in Bathsheba, he's gone. Now Absalom's gone. It's, it's not a pretty picture. And the sad thing is, is that when all of this goes down, David understandably is grieved, but as his heart is broken for Absalom, He's making the people of Israel feel ashamed for fighting on his behalf. And Joab has to call him on the carpet and say, you know what? These people have stood by you. They have put their lives on the line for you. They have followed you. They have done everything they can to back you. And rather than thanking them for their service and their faithfulness to you, you wish you were dead rather than Absalom. And you can understand that from a parent's perspective. But it wasn't doing a lot of good for the, the morale of the people of Israel. And it was already shaky at that point. So going on, in verse 19, or chapter 19, David's going back now, and he's pardoning Shammai. He's heading back to Jerusalem. And uh, in verse 24, Mephibosheth shows up, and it says, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, he had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard or washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day that he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, your servant is lame. He slandered your servant before my lord, the king, but my Lord, the King, is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, for my Father's house 
were but men were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you have sent your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right do I have than to cry out to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affair? I have decided, and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. And my heart just breaks for Mephibosheth. Say that three times fast. But my heart breaks for him because here's this guy, and his daddy, Jonathan, loved David. David showed kindness and all, and now David's just kind of like in this funk. And it's like, God, just, you know, divide the land or whatever. And Mephibosheth's like, I don't care. I'm just glad you're back. And that's just so heartbreaking. And you're seeing the innocent suffer. You're seeing all of this garbage because of David's sin. And in chapter 20, the repercussions continue to grow because the people of Israel decide, hey, you know what? This didn't go so well. Let's bring David back as king. And you got to think about David's heart. You know, you've just you've just had your life put on the line by your own son. The nation that you've given everything for and was on the run and you were being faithful even when you were a wanted person by King Saul, you're still taking care of God's people and now they're turning on you? I mean, have you ever been in that place that the people you love or the people that you've poured into so much are the very ones that hurt you and they turn on you? I don't know if there's a pain that's really that deep than to love somebody so much and then have them turn on you and hurt you. And that's what David was facing. And the people of Israel are going, well, we should bring him back as king. And the people of Judah were slow on the uptake. The people of Judah were like, well, okay, do we want to do this or not? So Israel finally sends out to David and says, you know what, we want you as king. And then the people of Judah go, well, we should do it too. So they sent out to messages to David and said, you know, we want you as king too, come with us. So Israel starts going, no, wait, you guys delayed. You're his own brother's. You're the tribe of Judah, and you should have been the first to call him home, but you didn't. We did. And so Judah turns around and says, well, you know what? He's one of us, not one of you. You have no claim to him. And so now there's this fight going on between Israel and Judah again over who has the best claim to David. And so here comes Sheba, a worthless man, it says, chapter 20, verse 1. There happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba of the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, Saul's, Saul's tribe. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So here we go again. We've got another division of the kingdom. We've got another revolt. This time, Joab and David send out uh, a force to go and deal with Sheba. And they deal with him. 
okay? Actually, somebody in the, there was a lady in the town where Sheba was holed up, and they're going to, Joab and his army is going to destroy it. And the lady says, hey, people used to come to the city to seek wisdom. And I'm one of the people that they used to seek wisdom from. What's your problem, Joab? And Joab says, well, we're coming after Sheba because he's inciting this revolt in Israel. And she said, hang on just a minute, I'll be right back. She goes away, and the next thing you know, Joab's head goes, not Joab's, uh, Shammai's head goes flying over the wall. And the lady says, okay, there's Shammai, we good? Joab says, we're good. And there it is. You know, that's like, yuck. But all this stuff is going on, and now finally things are starting to stabilize again with David as king over Israel. That's really messy, isn't it? The whole the whole thing. Because of his sin regarding Uriah and Bathsheba, we're watching an entire nation torn apart. We're watching a family torn apart. We're watching lives torn apart. We're going to see David's heart torn apart in the Psalms. But then something really wild happens in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. Look at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So you might remember that when, uh, when Joshua led the people in, the people of Gibeah were like, okay, we can try to fight. We know we're going to lose. Let's deceive. Joshua and the elders did not seek the Lord. And they believed the lie of the Gibeonites. They were looking at their clothes and their food and everything and thought they came from a far country. And because of the deception and because they didn't listen to the Lord or even look to the Lord, they made a covenant with Gibeah. And then when it came time to go against Gibeah, the Gibeonites were like, ah, you can't take that city. Why not? That's ours. And you made a covenant. But Saul broke that covenant. And we're talking hundreds of years later. Saul broke that covenant and started to strike down the Gibeonites. Why God chose now to deal with it, I don't know. We're not told. But God delayed until this point in David's reign to deal with the sin of Saul in Saul's reign for a covenant that was made under Joshua. I don't understand. Why not deal with it when Saul broke that covenant? I don't know. But God's dealing with it now. And so the Gibeonites demand seven men of Saul's family, and they execute them for breaking the covenant. And the famine's ended, and it's gone. Chapter 22, David's praying for deliverance. And he's got some songs to the Lord. We won't look at those. It's a recap of David's mighty men. And then in chapter 24, David 
does a census of Israel, all right? Again, chapter 24, verse 1. Now listen to what this says. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Okay, that's important, Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go throughout all the tribe of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still sees it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? So Joab's like, dude, no way. Because you remember in the book of Numbers, they took two censuses. And when you took a census, it was to be at the command of God, and you were supposed to pay a ransom price for each man that was counted. This is why. It was a reminder that the people belonged to God. When a ruler did a census of his armies, his, his fighting men, he was claiming ownership of those people. They were his to command. He was in charge. God's way was different. It's like, no, if I tell you to do a census, that's fine, but you're going to pay a ransom for each one. You're going to buy them back from me, so to speak, so you remember they're not your people. They're my people. And so that's why Job's like, dude, don't do this. You know, you have no place with this. David didn't listen. But it's weird that it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We don't know why. And then it says, he incited David against him, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So did God tempt David? No. Incidentally, the word he isn't there. Okay, there is no subject there in the Hebrew. What we know from 1 Chronicles 21 is that it's Satan who stood up against Israel, and Satan is the one who tempted David to do this thing. Okay? It's one of those weird things where God, and again, we see his power and authority over everything. God allows Satan to basically tempt David, just as God allowed Satan to tempt Job and to put Job through the ringer. Again, we don't know why God was wanting to discipline Israel. There was something wrong, and he used this as the opportunity to do it. And I chewed on this for quite a bit, and I'm like, God, I don't find an answer. And it's like, no, you don't. Like, okay. So I don't get an answer? No, you don't. Okay. I don't like that. Oh, well, you know. So we don't know why, but we see God dealing with some sin, something Israel was doing, and he's bringing judgment, just like he did with the issue of Saul and the Gibeonites. There was an outstanding sin, but God chose us a time that was way removed to deal with it. But I love the fact that we see David's heart in verse 17. Look at what it says. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. God sent a plague. He said, David, you got a choice. You can have three years of famine, 
Three months of war, three days of pestilence, which do you want? And he's like, you know what? I'd rather fall at the hands of, or be at the mercy of God than man. And so God sent the plague. And the fact that David was, look, God, I did this, not them. But God was judging Israel for some sin. But David's heart was, put it on me, not them. And God was like, no, it's on them. But what ends up happening is there's the threshing floor of Aruna. And I find that interesting. Here we are again at a threshing floor, just like we were with the Ark of the Covenant. When they did it, did God's work man's way, and it was at the threshing floor where the wheat and the chaff were separated, where the flesh and the spiritual were separated there. Here again, we have this judgment and the separation happening here. And God tells David to buy the threshing floor and to offer a sacrifice there. This is where the plague stops. And Aruna comes out and he says, hey, David, you can have this. You can have the oxen, you can have the wood, you can have it all. I just give it to you. You do the offering to the Lord. And look at, look at what David says. He says, no, this is verse 24, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David understood sacrifice costs you something. We don't like to make sacrifices very often. But if we're going to really serve the Lord, it's going to be a sacrifice. It's going to entail sacrifice. And from this point, this is actually the threshing floor, the place where God tells David to build the temple. Okay? So God's using it, and God's taking David through all this garbage, but ultimately, in chapter 22, he's laying up, uh, of, of 1 Chronicles, he's laying up all the materials to build the temple on this site. And David realizes that the kingdom that God has promised is an enduring kingdom. And again, the king is God himself. And David is only a servant of the king. So that being said, if we go to Psalm 38, we're going to look at a couple of things as we look at three psalms here. Psalm 38 is David's internal torment from the things that we were just looking at. Okay? Because sin doesn't just affect outwardly, it affects us inwardly as well. David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Basically, God, I don't want the fire of your anger and your wrath. Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Okay? Fortunately, the Lord does not just come down on us like a ton of bricks. Um, in anger and fury and stuff. When he chastises us, it's because he loves us, all right? He's correcting us. But look at the pain that David's going through inwardly. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. 
For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes it is also gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague, and my my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. He definitely wasn't rebuking his children for what they were doing. But for you, O Lord, I do wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boasts against me when my foot slips. So he's crying out to the Lord, And have you ever been in something like this where because of your sin, because of something you've done, it's just tearing you up inside and it's eating you up? That's what sin does. It affects our relationship with the Lord. It affects our emotions. It affects our mentality. It affects our relationships. It affects everything. And that's why God warns us. But the beauty of it is, is that we have hope in the Lord. Psalm 40, look at what David says. I waited patiently for the Lord, verse 1. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. He had seen a lot of that. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So he's looking to the Lord to forgive, to deliver, to heal him. And then in verse 6, we have a shift, and it's speaking of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, have Jesus saying these words, okay? In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open, open ear. The way that Paul translates it from the Greek is you have given me a body, okay? So that idea of there's obedience, but it wasn't the sacrifice of animals, and that's what's being dealt with in Hebrews. Jesus is that sacrifice. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And then in verse 9, this applies both to David and to Jesus. 
I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. When Jesus came, he came to speak deliverance. He came to speak salvation. Not hope in an earthly sacrifice, not hope in the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but in the sacrifice of himself on the cross for us. David was looking for the salvation of his soul. And prophetically, he was looking to Messiah. He was looking to the King of Kings, his descendant that would come and reign on the throne forever, okay? So it's a beautiful thing where in the midst of all this garbage that David's going through, he's looking ahead, prompted by the Holy Spirit to bring in the words of Christ and what Jesus would do to bring salvation to his people and proclaim that salvation to the people. And then from here, we're going to jump to chapter 10, or uh, 110, I'm sorry, of Psalms. This does not apply to David. This is strictly Jesus, okay? David was a prophet, and Jesus attributes this as David, or David speaking under the authority of the Holy Spirit, okay? So Psalm 110 is directly quoted 27 times in the New Testament. So with all this junk that's going on around David, he's looking not toward his own kingdom. It's, it's in shambles. But God has promised him that there would be a king that would sit on the throne forever. And he's looking to that king. And this is where the king is revealed through the Holy Spirit, through David. All right? There's no place where this applies to David at all. Jesus says, this is David speaking under the Holy Spirit. The Lord says to my Lord, the Lord there you see it in capitals, that's Yahweh. Yahweh says to my master, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, it talks of how Jesus, after his death, was raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father, okay? And the Lord telling him, I will make your enemies your footstool. Verse two, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Do you notice that it says your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power? Service to the Lord is not compulsory, okay? James Montgomery Boyce said this about this verse. He said, there is no mercenary or slave in the service of God. There is no mercenary or slave in the service of God. The Lord only calls for volunteers 
whoever will, whoever wants to be a part of what I'm doing, come and be a part of it. They're arraigned in holy garments, holy attire, living a life for the Lord. When Paul talks about giving our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, that's that life where by living for the Lord and serving the Lord willingly, we are blessing him, we are worshiping him and honoring him. So often Christians think and churchgoers think, well, when I go to church, I worship when I sing. The way we live worships the Lord. Remember, Jesus said, let your light so shine before all men that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. People looking at us, walking in the ways of the Lord and going, your God must be something special. Yes, he is, and let me tell you about him and let me tell you about his son. We honor him through living holy lives. We bless him and bring glory to him but it's voluntary. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Five times in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's an eternal, never-ending priesthood. That's what David understood about the Messiah and the kingship of Jesus. It was eternal. It was never going to end. Jesus alone had the position of king and priest. Priests could not be king. Kings could not dabble in the things of the, uh, the priestly services. They were separate. But in Jesus and in Melchizedek, they're combined. Okay, Very, very different priestly order and eternal order. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. The word of God tells us that when this is all said and done, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Kyrios, Lord, Master, to the glory of the Father. One day this is all going to wrap up. Revelation shows us that. Peter talks about how people will say, you know, you keep talking about the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. Well, you know, we're not seeing the coming of the Lord, and it's been going on for a long time. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises but he desires that none perish, but that all would come to repentance. As soon as Jesus says, that's it, and the Father sends him to take his throne on the earth, it's a done deal. And the judgment of God will come upon this earth. The Lord wants people saved. The Lord loves people so much that he sent his only begotten son to give his life as a ransom. Like we saw there in Psalm 40, 
so that we can have that relationship with the Lord. And so we're in a time in our, in our world where things are just crazy and falling apart all around us. Why doesn't God deal with the wicked? I don't know. Why doesn't God handle these problems that are going on in the world right now? I don't know. Those are the questions that King Asa asked. Those are the questions that Job asked and others have asked. But what we see is God's timing is right and perfect. And we know that a day is coming when the Lord will judge the world. Fortunately, we have Jesus as our Savior. When we fall and we sin, we have hope and deliverance. But remember that when we do sin, the consequences go... You know, people have this idea sometimes where it's like, well, I'll just ask the Lord to forgive me and I'll be good. You know what? God may forgive, but the repercussions of sin are ongoing. We just don't want to go down that path. Jesus doesn't want us to go down that path. You know, Paul talks about, hey, we've got grace and forgiveness, so is that a license to sin? No. But thank God we've got covering when we do sin. The Lord is sovereign and over our lives and over this world, and he cares about us. He'll deal with sin across the board, and we can rest in that. He will make things right in this world. I think for us as Christians, we need to be mindful of our own little world, that we're walking in accordance with the will of the Father. And thank God when we do sin, when we do slip up, we can approach the throne of grace, that great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, and have forgiveness for sin and have that high priest who actually intercedes on our behalf before the Father. May we not sin, but praise God for the covering when we do. Amen.